Let us remember we are always and everywhere in the holy presence of Christ. Hello, this is Rick, and welcome to the Presence Podcast. You're here for episode number 72. And I am back in my favorite place recording this on my screened-in back patio porch, which regular listeners from, well, the fall of last year will know that I call this Shalom Place or Serenity Place because, well, it's a place of peace and a place of joy and a place of rest and, oh, it's good to be back. Now, I'm not quite warm enough to sit out here for a long period of time, but long enough to record a podcast or two, which I plan to do on this, my Wednesday of spring break. And I'm glad you're here wherever and whenever you are. Thanks for listening to how I kept my eyes, my ears, and my soul open to experience the presence of Christ. So yesterday's podcast was about the book, the novel, The Wall by John Lanchester. Now I have finished it and this podcast episode will contain some spoilers. All right. So I'm just saying that up front. If you want to read the novel and you don't want spoilers, you probably don't want to listen. All right. Now I'm not going to spoil the full ending of the book, but I am going to spoil a twist that happens into the third act of the book. I'm not going to spoil it in the write-up, but I will spoil it here. All right. You are forewarned. You might want to listen to yesterday's podcast to get the plot of the book. So I'm not going to review that. I am going to say that what ends up happening is the defenders who are the main characters, including the narrator, they get ambushed while they're on the wall. And it turns out that very clearly it is evident that the captain was the one that allowed the ambush, that he was on the inside and allowed these others to storm the wall and kill some of the, um, the defenders. Now, the third act of the book takes place where our defenders have been put out to sea. They've basically been made others. And as I mentioned yesterday in setting up the world of the book, that is the punishment for every other that a defender allows over the wall, that defender, a defender, or multiple defenders are put out to sea, presumably to die out there beyond the wall. So that's what happens to our characters. Now, the boat that they are on, they discover that the captain, the one who betrayed them, who the main character thought that he killed in the midst of the attack, he is still alive. He's in bad shape, but he's still alive. And this is the scene, and it's, I'm going to read a couple pages here because I think it, it articulates the theme that I want to reflect on and, and really where I feel Christ's presence in this, um, in this novel. So I'm going to read it, and um, here goes. It's page 177 and 178. The captain sat with his back against the front of the lifeboat. We stood in front of him. The captain said, It was ten years. Seven of us set out to get over the wall. Then there were further expeditions with messages back and forth. We had a set of signals with lights. I was the only one who made it. We all knew we would have to wait, and in the end, it was five years before I was able to get a message back. Then we moved to the next phase. I waited for three more years. Then I was a captain, and we could start to execute a specific plan. 
But now we had gotten in touch with a wider network. Some of your countrymen don't agree with the wall. They think you need the wall to keep out the water, but not to keep out human beings. Some of them don't agree with turning people into help. They think it's slavery. It's a big network, much bigger than you realize. I don't know much about who is in it, and I don't know who they're helping, but I do know that my people are not the only ones who are coming. He stopped. We waited. We wanted something more, and I could tell that he knew it. The silence went on, the human silence, because the wind and waves and creaking in the boat never stopped. It is never silent in a small boat in northern waters. Eventually, it was Haifa who spoke. Her voice was hoarse from her hours of retching. Aren't you going to say you're sorry? The captain was stiff and still, leaning back rigidly, and I felt there was a strong reaction he wanted to give, but wouldn't. He thought for a long time. He said, The thing we most despise about you, you people, is your hypocrisy. You push children off a life raft and wish to feel good about yourselves for doing it. Okay, fine, if that's what you want to do, but you can't expect people the people you push off the side of the raft to think the same, to admire your virtue and principle while we drown. So no, I'm not going to be like you. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Not even for Sarge, said Haifa. The captain blinked but said nothing. In that moment, I did want to kill him. I looked over at Haifa, who seemed as if she was going to be sick again, and at James, who was standing with his lips pursed, shaking his head, looking like someone on a television debate panel trying to make it clear to the audience that he disagreed with an argument being made by a fellow panelist. Then I looked over at Hughes, and what I saw on his face was the look of a man who was in the middle of suffering a huge, all-encompassing disappointment. My anger subsided and began to turn into a sense of loss. I felt sad. Loss. Loss. There was just so much loss in what had happened to us, in what the captain had done, in what we had done to the world, in what we had done to each other, and in what was happening to us. So uh, I will stop there on page 178, and it continues with them showing the captain mercy, in part because he says that he can help them to find safety as they are adrift without navigation, with enough supplies to keep alive for a limited period of time. And that's what they do. They keep him alive. And I think for me, the Christ presence moment in this is not so much the mercy that is shown, although I do think mercy rather than vengeance is the way of Christ. But I think it's actually something deeper. I think it's in that last sentence, this idea of sadness, realizing that the captain, the other, the others that he represented, the loss that they experienced of climate change, of rising sea levels, of nations being buried underwater, but also that the character himself, the defender who's the narrator, the loss that he recognizes, the loss that goes all the way back to the damage and destruction that not his generation, but human beings of his nation, his parents' generation and their parents' generation and so forth, that they did to the planet. And again, as I said yesterday, I think this book offers a prophetic word, a prophetic voice about where we could be going as we obsess about walls, as we 
do very little, if nothing, about the rising sea levels and the changing climate. I feel Christ's presence in this in a, a warning, a prophetic calling out, crying out, will you listen? And the question for me and for you, dear listener, is will we listen and not just change our behaviors by giving up and sacrificing, and, but by getting involved, encouraging others and making those tough political choices that we need to make and not just political ones, but day-to-day ones that we need to make. One final thought, and I think I raised this yesterday and this, this question about, is this book hope punk? I think I did a previous podcast where I talked about hope punk and I've been very sensitive to seeking to find examples of it in the shows that I watch and the stories that I read, the podcasts that I listen to, the songs that I play and so forth. And I thought about this since I finished the book last night. Is this hope punk? Now, it is a hopeful book. It does end hopefully with a sense of possibility. That's all that I'm going to say about the absolute ending of the book because I do want you to read it. But I don't think it is hope punk because in my understanding of hope punk, there is a resistance. There is a trying to overturn the system. And I guess we do this through small acts of kindness and acts of empathy. And we certainly see an act of kindness and empathy where the characters could have killed the captain and been completely justified in doing that. And there are other acts of empathy that come later in the story. But I am struck in the book by the lack of desire in the main character, the defender who is our narrator, in him really trying to overturn the system. He feels uncomfortable with it at times, but he doesn't actively seek to do something different. In fact, the um, elite leader that he encounters, our narrator really wants to be like him and plots and plans and tries to figure out how to be like that elite leader. So I don't see it as hope punk, which is okay. Not everything I have to read has to be hope punk. I don't see it as grim dark either because yes, the world is grim and there is a pretty grim um, uh, moment toward the end of the story past what I read to you, but it is not despair. It is not bleakness. For our main characters, the world does end, or the story does end, not the world, but the story does end with some hope, possibility. But it's not all-encompassing, and it's local rather than global. So again, dear reader, I leave this with you. I hope you read The Wall. I think it is um, quite a a story and uh, creates... For me, the world it created was quite plausible and disturbing and challenging. And um, perhaps you'll find it that way too. As always, thank you so much for listening. Blessings and peace.